0: My guest today is Joel Waldfogel, the Aaron Krantz Family Professor and Chair of the Department of, Bus- of Business and Public Policy at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. He's the author of The Tyranny of the Market, Why We Can't Always Get What We Want. Joel, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. Now, our topic today is the performance of the market relative to the tyranny of the political process. You and I hold very different views on the subject, so I hope we'll have a lively discussion. In your book, The Tyranny of the Market, you argue that markets don't work as well as some of us think they do. What do you have in mind?
1: Well, I guess what I have in mind is that uh, when there are big fixed costs of providing things, meaning that a lot of expenditure has to be made by the firm before even the first, you know, the first widget comes off the line, that we can only get what we want if a lot of other people also want what we want. And you know, when our preferences differ... When different people have very different preferences over what kind of stuff they want, it becomes an issue because I get what I want only if there are a lot of people who share my preferences.
0: And how do you contrast that with what's historically been called the tyranny of the political process?
1: Yeah, so, you know, traditionally, uh, some observers, I think many sensible observers, have worried about the political process because, you know, when we do things through politics, uh, you know, the majority wins and the rest of folks go away from the process with something other than what they want. And I think a lot of observers have said, look, the market really avoids that problem. You know, in F- Milton Friedman's very memorable words, uh, he says, you know, each man can vote for the color of tie he wants and get it through the market, whereas the political process would subject us to, you know, what John Stuart Mill called the tyranny of the majority. I guess my point is that actually markets don't avoid that problem, They don't, at least not entirely. They don't avoid that problem because as in uh, as in politics, in markets, I get what I want only when a lot of others... Also want. and but I should say this is not about all markets, it's about markets where fixed costs are an important part of the process of production
0: well they 're not a particularly important process of production in in the color of a tie, so you, you pretty do, you do pretty much get what color of tie you want in design and shape there 's an immense amount of choice out there
1: you know i 'll give you that one that 's certainly a metaphorical example. I think it is true for neckties at least what I know of the production process. Uh, It's pretty much constant returns to scale. (laughs)
0: And and before we go on to this issue of fixed costs, which is really central to your your book and the argument, let's let's talk a little bit about public provision because I think, and and politically-based decisions, I think there's some confusion in people's minds about what that means exactly. So, for example, there are some types of goods where the level of the good is what everybody gets. So whatever level of, of missile defense, say, which example you mentioned in the book, whatever example of missile defense is out there, I can't have a big missile shield and you, can, and you get a smaller one. So whatever level is provided, whether it's provided by the public sector or by a private sector, which is going to be challenging because of free-riding problems, as you mentioned. But whether it's publicly or privately provided, it's very difficult to get two levels of national defense, two levels of an army, right? There's, just, there's one U.S. army. We all are going to get that same level of, of an army but the political process often intervenes in areas that don't have that characteristic and then impose for political reasons a single level so for example we have we've had for most of american history a, a government run post office and the price is uniform across all areas and that's a political decision it need not be that way there's nothing inherent in in postal service that makes it such that Everybody gets relatively the same amount of the good as the political process has decided or in the case of public schools. Uh, In the case of public schools, if you wish, you can augment it with private education either in the small sense of having after-school lessons or in the larger sense of putting your kid in a private school uh, totally. So there's a confusion about this tyranny of the majority. In some situations, the tyranny of the majority is inevitable. A politically decided level of something has to be the same for everybody with the inevitable disappointment that's going to result with people who feel differently. But other goods, I'd say it's different. The the tyranny of the majority is a choice that the political process has made. Do you agree with that?
1: I think so, yeah.
0: Okay, well then let's move on to the the private sector part. Um, You talk about the role of fixed costs. Give an example uh, from your book. Uh, or your work, where fixed costs play a role and you get this situation where how many uh, people are out there affects uh, the kind of, the diversity of, of choice that's available?
1: Sure. If I could, I, I'll, I'll give two because they kind of vary sure. along a spectrum. So if fixed costs are, are, let's say, large but not huge, and I'll be a little bit more specific about that as we go, then it's not enough for me to want something. A bunch of other people who share my preferences have to also have to want it. And in that sense, that's not a tyranny of the majority. It's a little bit like it, only in the sense that other people's preferences help determine what's available to me. What's going on there, though, is other people who share my preferences help me, but people with different preferences, they don't hurt me.
0: Yeah, that's a key distinction.
1: And, but in more extreme examples, uh, oh, I should say, so uh, uh, that's not even an example, it's just a hypothetical, I think the radio industry corresponds to that. So a typical U.S. city has you know, maybe 20 stations on the dial, uh, uh, for some types of listeners, you know, many cities have no stations targeting that type of listener. Other cities have some. As you get big enough, then, you know, many types of listeners have stuff targeting them because there are enough sort of preference compatriots to bring forth what they like. But that's still a, a kind of a moderate example. It's not really tyranny the majority or not even really quite analogous to it. It's only remotely like it in the sense, again, that other people's preferences help determine what's available to me. That is, it's not just my preferences and, you know, that determine what I get. And the, the a more example. extreme kind of an example uh, would be drawn from an, an industry like, let's say, uh, daily newspapers. Uh, a typical U.S. city has one daily newspaper that at least that's, uh, has at its home the center of the metropolitan area. There are sort of suburban papers that are a little bit of an amendment to this story, but you know, if we think about the daily newspaper industry as having... One product per market. Again, that's an abstraction. It's not strictly true in New York. It's not even strictly true in Philadelphia. Uh, but nevertheless, that product has to choose how to target itself. It can target itself to people who like one thing or who like another. And in that kind of a context, the more people there are who like one thing, you know, naturally the product's going to target itself at them and render itself less appealing to people who like something else. Now that's a bit more like uh, uh, more analogous to the tyranny of the majority in the political context. Again, a situation where fixed costs are so large that there are very few, let's even say literally, just one product that has to choose sort of whom to target.
0: Well, uh, the example you give, one of the examples you you mention in, in this discussion in newspapers, is the invasion of, say, USA Today or the New York Times to a national level. And that that could uh, let's say you live in a small town in Minnesota, the example you use, and you're enjoying the local news that your local paper provides when the New York Times comes along uh it could render your local paper um unviable and put it out of business put it out of business and reduce your choice level is is that isn't that the argument
1: well something like that i mean so so that could happen or it could simply be that. I mean, actually, let me let me back up a step, if you don't mind. Take your time. Because one way to think about, you know, if if you take the view that big fixed costs relative to market size create problems, or at least problems for somebody, because so far we haven't established that these are in general problems, but let's just say for now, problems for somebody. the The natural solution to that is either reducing the costs or increasing the market size, and trade is this the first. You know, the first thought—the natural way we increase market size is to move products across space, so that the demand of people elsewhere can be harnessed. With mine, to create what I want.
0: And I think there's no doubt that the reduction in transportation costs, either for physical goods or virtual goods via the internet, has expanded the choices available to people.
1: Yeah, no, I completely agree, and I, it's it's an enormous part of the story. I mean. I, uh you know as a as a i don't know if it's an aside or it's actually an important part of the story but you know even if if one's going to view me as being you know not as optimistic as one might be about markets i still think markets are the lion's share of the solution to these kinds of problems but, but nevertheless you know in the trade example with newspapers what's kind of interesting is that you know so making the new york times available throughout the country at first blush that just seems like an additional option so we have all our old options plus a new option so clearly we're we're better off well, I don't think it's quite that simple. You know, what seems to happen, you know, based on empirical study of this, is as the New York Times rolls out and becomes available in more and more markets, what happens is that the local papers reposition. So the New York Times siphons off these college-educated, kind of cosmopolitan readers, causing the local papers to reposition toward more locally-oriented people. Now, that by itself, there's nothing bad about it, but it is a little bit more nuanced than simply adding options to the existing set. I mean, in some sense, there are winners and there are losers, and the fact that the products have big enough fixed costs that there are relatively few of them means that it's not quite going to be a smooth you know, sort of continuum of, of increase. Instead, it's going to be a, a, more of a, a little bit more of a wrenching process that makes some people better off, some people worse off. It
0: does change the incentives facing the providers who, who were maybe doing fine before the new entry came in. I think that, that's always been the case. Sure, I'd like to focus on the newspaper story because I think the economics of it is so interesting. And I, f- I felt like you slighted one aspect of it, so I, wa- I want to see if, I'm, if you agree or not. Um, you make a very nice observation that when you move from, say, Fergus Falls, Minnesota, which is a small town, to Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is a pretty big city, to New York City, which is a very big city, you get more restaurants as the size of the city gets larger But you don't – and you get more diversity. You don't just get more restaurants. You get a wider array of restaurants. So you get more choice in Minneapolis than you get in Fergus Falls, but you get a lot more choice in New York City for a whole variety of different kinds of cuisines and styles and price ranges, et cetera. So larger cities have more choice, uh, and I think everyone would agree with that. The observation that you make that I think is interesting is that it doesn't work quite that way for newspapers, although I'd argue it works maybe a little bit more than you concede. It doesn't, but it doesn't work the same way for sure. As you go from Fergus Falls to Minneapolis to New York, you don't get the same explosion in uh, newspapers and in a variety of newspapers. New York City does have a few more papers than Minneapolis, but nothing like the explosion in restaurants. Now, you attribute that to fixed costs, and I want to challenge that. Isn't the key issue there, and it's what makes both radio and um, newspapers very distinctive, and there are two examples you use heavily in the book, isn't the real difference the fact that additional consumers are relatively cheap? It's not so much that there are high fixed costs, but that there's enormous economies uh, of scale, which I know are related to fixed costs, but it's not quite the same. Isn't that the relevant issue?
1: Well, I'm I'm not sure if we're speaking exactly the same same language. Let, yeah, let's see. Let try. me give you my uh, conception of it and see if it fits your conception. So the way I think about a product like uh, newspapers is that uh, so first of all, uh, it has uh, enormously fixed and, and very small variable or marginal costs. But what I guess what's important is the extent to which people agree about what constitutes a good product. If we had Really heterogeneous tastes about what constituted a good newspaper. For example, if if you know in New York there were twenty different languages spoken by each by five percent of the population, you know New York would presumably fragment because there would be this very different preferences over you know sort of what news what kind of newspaper I want.
0: It would be more like Fergus Falls.
1: Uh, I guess it would be more like a replication of you know each of the little slivers would be like a little chunk of Fergus Falls. But I think instead. Because we largely agree, uh, and I don't want to overstate that, but I think if we largely agree, then what a uh, firm can do is it can make a product, quote, better. But By better, I guess I mean more reporters, more editors, right. higher fixed costs, but no higher marginal costs, or really you know, not much higher. And it can price in a way that can undercut somebody who's a little bit different, because there really isn't much benefit from being much different. And so the way the market ends up is very concentrated. And here I'm, I'm just drawing on the work of John Sutton. This is not original to me. Uh, you know His argument is that, at least as I understand it, is that in industries where you produce quality with fixed costs or sunk costs, if you think about it dynamically, that uh, those industries need not fragment as they get large. They can remain concentrated.
0: Well, uh, l- let me try to expand the discussion then of quality. Uh, when we think about say, the New York Times or the Washington Post, which people would generally regard as as very good newspapers relative to what Fergus Falls or even Minneapolis might offer, although the Minneapolis Star is a fine paper, uh, from what I understand. Uh, it's not so much that the, that, the, that the marginal costs of quality are low, because to make the paper better, you do have to hire more editors and more uh, reporters. It's the marginal cost of producing another newspaper that's low. That's relatively... Uh, in exp- low and and doesn't and is fixed it is constant right so there's pr- there's pretty much uh, little cost to add, extra cost to adding an additional uh, reader of the newspaper by printing an extra copy those those fixed costs yeah
1: yeah I'm okay. with you
0: okay so w- what we see it seems to me in those is those cities that have, quote, only one newspaper, only two or three relative to what you might see in the restaurant business, is you get a much better paper. It covers a much wider array of stuff. Uh, but because there are um, – the, because the advertising revenue is such an important part of the total revenue relative to the subscription rate or the individual purchase uh, revenue, uh, their incentive is to widen the audience – very very widely because of that very low cost of expanding the uh the readership base through printing another newspaper so what you get is you get you get diversity i'd argue in a different way than than you've described it you get much more stuff in the paper it's bigger it has a wider array of coverage it has more reviews of stuff that's going on and in the case of washington dc and i'm sure it's true in new york city i don't know it personally But the Washington Post has different editions for different neighborhoods. They have a whole section that's different for what part of the D.C. area you're in, and I'm sure – that I know that's true in – I think that's true in New York. I'm pretty sure it is. Um, So they do cater to the individual audiences but not in the way that we think of it as multiple providers. There are multiple choices though.
1: You know, mm-hmm. I see what you're saying. I mean, it is true, number one, that a newspaper is a bundle of articles. And so you can imagine in that bundle that comes today that there's something that appeals to you and something to me. And you're right also that uh, there are these neighborhood editions. so there's a little bit of, of horizontal tar- you know, targeting of people who differ in their, let's say, geographic preference within markets. But some aspects of the product, though, isn't entirely portable. I mean, to take an extreme example, language. You know, it's either in English or it's in Spanish. Uh, To take other kinds of examples, I mean, so uh, different kinds of demographic groups prefer papers that are targeted differently, and although it is true you could kind of add articles that appeal to one group or another, I mean, at at the end of the day, uh, uh, you know, cities that are demographically one way have papers targeted more that way than cities that are demographically another way. So I I take your point that a newspaper is a complicated product because it's a bundle of articles. As opposed to, you know, just a, a shirt that has a single color, uh, but there is th- some aspect of the product positioning that isn't, you know, that you can't just appeal to everyone by adding more chunks to. Now that's true. And
0: I, I however, here's the, the 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 punchline for me is that I don't think there's ever been a better time to be curious about the world than today. Uh, it's true we don't have an explosion in newspapers, and so if you measure quality that the market produces by the number of newspapers, it looks pretty pretty thin. But if you measure quality by information available to that Hispanic consumer or the uh, – whatever variety of ethnic or religious or language-based variety that you'd want, I, I don't think there's ever been a time that the world's had – more ha, had more variety. I think the amount of variety that the markets produced is, is just extraordinary.
1: Well, I think that's particularly true for non-local information. I, mean, yes. I, think, I think it's uh, it's undeniably true that you know today I can get on the internet no matter what my interest and get non-geographically specific information targeting my group. And I think it's never been never been better. I have to agree with you. And you look at cable, which is largely non-local information. There are hundreds and hundreds of channels in many languages, targeting many different groups, I think. But I I don't think that's, uh, I mean, that is true, uh, but that I don't think. um,
0: It's not the whole story.
1: Yeah, no, but it it doesn't deny the the kind of forces I'm talking about. I think that, you know, technology, technological changes that liberate people are are a hugely important feature of of our lives today. You know, I just say that, that local information doesn't get resolved quite in that way. National information for sure, non-local information for sure.
0: Well, I would guess You know, – we're talking about New York. We think of it as having uh, maybe five newspapers, Uh, the New York Times, the Daily News, the Post, the New York Sun, and Newsday, which is a Long Island paper. There are probably a few others I haven't thought of. But I'd assume – and I don't know this. I'd be curious if you know. I assume there is a
1: large number
0: of ethnically targeted papers. I assume there is a Hispanic paper in, in New York City.
1: Well, there's Maybe a lot more of – I mean in many cities, there, there are a lot of weekly papers targeting specific audiences. Mm-hmm. The daily market tends to be a little different. There are very few um,
0: – No, no, you're right. It's a weekly yeah. – it tends to be a weekly market. I mean
1: there are some exceptions. There are some daily uh, – a few cities have dailies actually in Spanish, but that's pretty rare.
0: Yeah, and the part that I agree with that you, that you stress in the book is that if you're a Hispanic uh, consumer in Fergus Falls, you might not get the array of choices – that you get in New York City where there's that critical mass of Hispanic or whatever other ethnic group or or language that you want. But I don't – I really don't see that as the tyranny of the market. I understand that – and I think everyone would agree with you that as more people are like you, you have – especially when they're fixed costs, you have to get to a critical mass to support the Hispanic radio station or the Afghan restaurant or the uh, kosher butcher. Uh, you you have to, you're not going to see those things in undiverse places, and when you're only a very very small minority in those places, you're going to be disappointed. But I don't think adding other people unlike you makes your life harder.
1: You know, in those examples, I agree with you. Those are okay. what I call this sort of "who benefits whom" phenomenon, mm-hmm. which is a cousin of, but not not really what I would call tyranny. The the example I would cite as tyranny. I mean, we've been talking about newspapers and there are a lot of complicated features. But the evidence I would cite uh, as an example analogous to tyranny of the market is the evidence that if you look at African American newspaper readers versus uh, non-African Americans, I'll just succinctly call white, that in markets that are uh, that have bigger you know bigger white populations, a bigger fraction of whites read in markets with bigger black populations, a bigger fraction of blacks read. But what's the punchline here is that the cross effects are actually negative. The more there are of that group, the less it is that this group reads, which is an effect that's like the tyranny of the market, or Please. the tyranny of the majority, whatever. It, mm-hmm. it is the kind of the punchline that leads me to, to say that here's a very high fixed cost kind of a product, and here we actually do see uh, a sense in which more people of your type actually harms people of my type in, in our capacity as consumers of this product.
0: Now, I think, I think there's some truth to that because of the publicness The effective publicness, or of that, way I would describe it, is that that low marginal cost of adding readers is going to push a uh, a white-oriented newspaper to add more white stuff as more white people come to that area, and make it less interesting to an African American reader potentially. And I think that's true because of the, the economies of scale of producing newspapers. Again, whether you want to attribute it to the high fixed costs or the low marginal costs, they obviously interact. I think that's the, the real point. I just don't think that phenomenon is very widespread, but I, I, it, it's potentially true in, uh, in, in newspapers. Let's move to a different example that you used, which I also found interesting, was the uh, example of French movies, Talk about what the uh, the argument there is for protecting uh, the French film industry and how it, it's a little different than the standard economic story.
1: Yeah, so this is a, a lot like the kind of the spread of the New York Times kind of an argument. Again, I I don't want to uh, appear to come down on one side or n- another of, uh, of whether it's a good idea or a bad idea to, pr- to protect French movies. It's just that you know if you have Hollywood movies, these Hollywood movies are these very high cost spectacles that are. Uh, you know, very appealing to many kinds of consumers, but not to everyone. I, I think, in the in the typical view of the world, you know, we look at France. We like to make fun of them. It's crazy for them to to restrict inputs after or imports, rather, because uh, Hollywood movies just add to the choice set available to French film goers. But in a high fixed cost world, that's not quite right. I mean, it's uh, uh, what might happen instead is a repositioning. You know, as you allow imports into France. You might see French cinema shrink and, and change its targeting, which is going to leave some French cinephiles, maybe not me, but some folks, uh, worse off. Now, I don't, that's not by itself an argument for doing anything. It's just the point is that the way markets work with big fixed costs is a bit more nuanced than I think that this, what I would call the standard view that just says uh, trade adds options.
0: The alternative explanation for why French the French government restricts uh, imports of American movies is to enrich French filmmakers at the well, expense certainly. of Well, certainly.
1: No, no, that's right. I mean, our standard view of these is, is just rent-seeking on the part of producers, right. and I think that's often the case. I think if it weren't a differentiated product, and if it weren't a differentiated product with high fixed costs, I, I could find little other you know, reason to think that. Uh, but you know, given the arguments I'm making here, I can see this as a possible, as, as a context in which it's a little more complicated, and it's not on its face insane
0: let me Let me challenge the high fixed cost issue and, and maybe we can broaden our discussion into the area of books as well, which is a very interesting issue. Uh, there are high fixed costs of a blockbuster. Uh, you know if you're going to make a um, a movie that's going to going to play in 1500 theaters around America and then go to the world, uh there's going to be a big marketing push for that to get people aware of it uh, you're going to have usually going to have large uh budget. Actors and actresses, director, etc., and so movies that are, you know the reverse causation is equally true. A movie that spends a lot of money better attract a large audience. A large audience, and there's a big part of Hollywood and a big part of the book business geared toward those markets. Right? Harry Potter would be an example in the right. book world. An obvious example. Well, the actual the actual input cost aren't that high in that <laughs> case. But but there's an enormous marketing right. thing that has to swing no, I'm into action you, yeah, yeah. and and publishers. There are publishers that really specialize in in blockbusters, just like most mainstream Hollywood theaters, excuse me, production companies are looking for blockbusters. They don't always predict them very well. And the same is true of the book business. But when the you know the, the hot book comes out of somebody's bio and a massive marketing effort's put forward, they expect it to cover a, to acquire a large audience. Uh, having said that, there's an enormously fruitful and, and varied set of choices. In the smaller niche markets of different kinds of books, America last year, uh, 300,000 books were published. You walk into Barnes and Noble. Yes, there's a big table or Borders. There's a big table of bestsellers out, but there are a lot of smaller niche books that are that are available that that are directed at a very specialized audience. And in the case of movies, I would think that's true too. Movie costs have come down dramatically. The fixed costs are relatively small now for making. You can reach economically it's viable, it's financially viable to reach a small audience. So I'm skeptical that that's a big factor in that French movie story, or do you disagree?
1: Well, I think movies are a lot like uh, newspapers in the sense that you know we, the quality is produced with fixed costs. Uh, now, I think unlike newspapers, and, and here I, I, I think I really I agree with some, uh, a big aspect of what you're saying, unlike newspapers, movies are very varied, and people's preferences over movies are very varied. And so... I mean, on the one hand, the, the, even though the, the cost of making movies, we'll call them the exogenous fixed costs, you know, literally the technological costs, because we can do it on video, etc., and we can distribute it straight to video, never cheap. use the theaters, yeah. it has really become a lot cheaper to make movies. But what hasn't happened is an entire fragmentation. And we, at the same time that we've had uh, the cost of the most expensive movies continuing to go up, we do have a bunch of, a bunch of kind of fragmentation around the fringes. So, I mean, it's a, it's a mixed kind of a context. I mean, I, I agree with you and I don't agree with you at the same time. I think there's the blockbuster end of the, of the industry conforms to what I'm describing, but at the same time, there, there's this you know, explosion of, of movie making at the other end that doesn't. And if it were all the latter kind, then I guess there'd be nothing to talk about. But the fact that the production process remains one where it pays to invest a lot in a movie targeted to sort of where the massive taste is, Means that some of this kind of phenomena will still operate. And, you know, at the same time, though, I don't disagree with uh, with your point that people can make lots of different kinds of movies, even with small audiences.
0: Yeah, and, and of course, I mean, if you want, if you have a taste for enjoying a blockbuster that's sophisticated, uh, you're likely to be disappointed because, as you say, it, it will cater to the mass audience. It will tend to look for a common denominator. What I find incredible is the explosion of choices outside the common denominator. And we had Chris Anderson on a podcast a while back talking about his book, The Long Tail. And there, technology, a force that you recognize in the book, plays a role in this. Uh, technology has lowered the cost of stocking inventory at Amazon and at iTunes and other places on the web. So in many ways, uh, the smallest niches are still uh, filled in, in the market economy.
1: Yeah. No, I I'm big on that. I mean, Chapter 6 is about liberation through – Technology. I mean, for example, you know, a lot of the a lot of the stories in my book are about uh, African American consumers who tend to be small groups with different preferences for some products, finding less kind of less appealing options in markets. And we know there's this digital divide, a lower tendency for African Americans to connect to the internet. But I do find in uh, you know one of the studies that I based chapter six on that that digital divide is actually smaller in places where blacks are locally a smaller fraction of the population, which really can be interpreted as the Internet kind of as the liberating opportunity for access to information and products. And it's more appealing in places with less uh, offline variety. And so it's technology to the rescue.
0: Let's talk about alternatives to technology, which you you touch on briefly in the book, but but not at length, and I'd like you to talk more about them here. Uh, this, the role of fixed costs, which is, I think, indisputable. I, I don't think any economist would disagree with you that that fixed costs can reduce consumer choice. Obviously, you know, in the restaurant examples you give, if you're looking for an Afghan, a really good Afghan restaurant in um, in Dayton, Ohio, you're probably going to be disappointed unless there's something about Dayton I don't know about in terms of its concentration of Afghanis. Yeah, but, you and me both. Uh, but 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 I think that you know that's that's true. Um, no one would suggest. That that the market gives everybody exactly what they want, and and the example I like to use is that if you don't want a back seat with your car, you you don't have that choice. You 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 can't. That isn't one of the options. The the number of options on a car is not unlimited, and part of that's simply because it's costly to tailor every car to every consumer. So you don't get exactly what you want. I, I would argue you get more of what you want now than you did. Hundred years ago, through innovation and competition, but you don't that's get. Right. Yeah. but you don't get exactly what you want for sure. The question is, should we do anything about that? Uh, and in the book, you, you give some examples of where we've done something about it in a couple places. What What would you suggest we might do about it? And do you think it's a good idea?
1: So that's a really good question. Let, let's talk first about whether. In principle, it's even a problem because so far we really haven't even said that. I think I've I've made the argument that some people are going to find themselves unhappy. You know, the fact that some people are unhappy is really no cause for for any sort of action. Uh, it could be entirely efficient for people to be unhappy. You know, if it costs a million dollars to create something that has ten dollars in value, uh, you know, it shouldn't be created. And the person who wanted it and was willing to pay ten dollars for it probably had ought to be unhappy. I guess the what what makes this potentially more than just a Some people are unhappy situation and more of an actual efficiency, a potential efficiency problem is that when fixed costs are big, we don't necessarily expect markets to do all the things they ought to do. And just to be maybe a little more concrete about that, um, we think about ways that, uh, what products does the market select to offer? It selects the products where the revenue available to the seller exceeds the cost of providing them. If the revenue actually happens to be the entire valuation that the consumers place on it, which requires sellers to be able to really perfectly price discriminate and charge people exactly what they're willing to pay, then everything that ought to get offered will get offered. Or maybe to be a little more precise about it, if there's no product yet, but we have a technology for sort of getting everybody's willing to pay as revenue, then this first product that ought to get offered will get offered. In reality, it's often quite difficult to perfectly price discriminate. I think it's probably always quite difficult yeah. to perfectly price discriminate. So there can be a range of, of, of market sizes where it was big enough that the value to society exceeded the cost, but not big enough that the revenue exceeded the cost. And so that's, that provides a theoretical underpinning, not original to me. This is for the old, uh, old industrial economics going back to the 70s and 80s, maybe earlier. But there's a range of markets where things ought to get done, but they won't necessarily get done by the market.
0: Yeah, let us let's, let's try to clarify this a little bit because I think the term efficiency the way economists use is, use it is very different from the way others use it. And and the example you gave is a good one to to think about that that term. Economists use the term efficient to mean they use it in different ways actually, but one of the ways they use it, the way I think you're using it is that there's a net benefit that when you sum it's a very utilitarian concept, and you know I'm a Chicago grad. I was taught efficiency uh, at, at the heart of, of all of my graduate training, and I've I've gotten less enamored of it as I've gotten older, and I spend much less time, almost no time on it in my micro class, by the way, which is which is strange. I spent in graduate school we spent a lot of time on deadweight loss, the idea that that various uh, situations, either government regulation, uh, typically can lead to a uh, a net loss or, or foregone net benefit, an opportunity to gain uh, benefit over cost. So, in the the standard argument is when something's when you look at efficiency, you want to add up all the benefits to people, and then you subtract all the costs, and you treat everybody as interchangeable. One person's benefits are, are added to anyone else's, and it just it's just an, a sum. and And so, in the example you're giving. One way to think of it, I think maybe for people to see it who don't have the book in front of them as I do, is that if you have somebody who really values this this good a lot, really wants to eat at the Afghan restaurants, willing to pay an enormous amount, or there are few people like that, and everyone else is only willing to pay a little bit, uh, a single price as opposed to price discrimination where you charge people different prices, but a single price might not be able to cover the costs of the, the fixed costs of the restaurant even though some of these people would get enormous value out of it existing. Is that is that a good way to describe it?
1: Oh, that's a very good way to say it. I wish I'd said it that way myself.
0: So so in that situation, the argument would be that, it, that the presence of fixed costs or the lack of the ability to price discriminate, both of them, either one of them, uh, is going to make it such that there's a net gain to society, a phrase that I utter with some uh, discomfort, Meaning if you summed all the be- – if the restaurant did exist, if you could overcome this price discrimination problem or if the fixed costs were lower, uh, the sum of the benefits of the people eating in the restaurant would outweigh the costs and there would be a net gain as defined by, by that method. So the question is what do you do about that? that that's just a you – know, isn't that just a fact of life?
1: Well, maybe. Let, let, me, let me add one more thing to the mix then. Get back to your actual question about what, what one does about it. Mm-hmm. I mean at the same time that you know markets can fail to provide things that they ought to provide again ought in the sense that the benefits are in excess of the costs, markets can go ahead and provide too many things that are uh, more things than are than are, are beneficial to society. Uh, you know, so I enter as a seller if the revenue I get covers my costs, I don't mind at all if the revenues were diverted from another firm. So there can be a tendency in large markets to actually have too many products. Now, I don't make a big deal out of this in the books. I'm not interested in in people with too much choice. Uh, I'm more interested in people with with what I think of as maybe not enough. But the the larger point, though, is that in a world with fixed costs, uh, a lot of the bets are off. That's a lot of our presumptions that leaving the market to itself will give us the right answer just aren't accurate theoretical presumptions, but that brings us back to your question yeah, what do we do a, about it
0: i 'd say it 's an empirical question right yeah. yes. a fixed no, costs are a reality yes. uh, you, you can 't uh, wave them away so so what what should we do if uh, we, we don 't live in a perfect world so what should we do to, could we make better way to say it? What could we do tangibly to make the world better other than dream about a world without fixed costs
1: so I, I always get nervous when people uh, um, you know propose new New policy initiatives based on theoretical ideas, even with empirical support. What I do in the book is to point out that we're already doing a lot of things that look like, and I hadn't thought of them this way initially, but that look like they're designed to address these concerns. We have a fair number of subsidies uh, at various levels, or from various levels of government, to uh, to overcome the fixed costs of providing various kinds of services in markets that look a little bit too small to cover them on their own. So I'm thinking of, for example, various subsidies given for air travel so that sort of smallish but not tiny markets uh, do get regular air service. There are subsidies for you know, for uh, public broadcasting, some of which fit this bill but many of which do not. There are a lot of subsidies for telecommunications, particularly in small markets where uh, the density of demand isn't enough to cover, uh, cover the, the big fixed cost of providing things. So I think we have a bunch of programs like that, and then the question becomes, so what do we do about it? Well, do we, on the basis of an argument that markets work well left alone, do we abolish these things? Or do we look at them and say, well, maybe they're actually serving some efficiency-enhancing function?
0: Well, let's take one of them you mentioned that I found very interesting, which was the example of Mason City. I think it's Iowa. Is that right? I'm, uh... I think it's Iowa. It's a, it's a small town. It's a, It's far away from – it's inconvenient to any major uh, airport, so if you want to get to Los Angeles, you got to drive a few hours, and then once you get to that city, you've got to take a not a, you know, got to switch plane somewhere else. And so, I think it's Mason City gets a subsidy of a million dollars a year, so that Masaba Airways or airlines uh, finds it profitable to serve them. Does that sound roughly correct?
1: You know, I don't, I don't remember the numbers, but the, that, that, that's the outline of the kind of thing that that, that that program, I think they call it the Essential Air Services Program, does.
0: So I was shocked to find out that that's the case, uh, and, and, and not quite as shocked that, that you defend the possibility that it might be efficiency enhancing. So l- let's take that example. First of all, do you have any idea how widespread those are? Is there more that, is there, Are there 12 of them? Are
1: there 50? No, no. There's something like – so all the cities that were served when airlines were regulated were eligible after deregulation. If commercial uh, aircraft – commercial airlines didn't enter, they were eligible for some some kind of subsidies. As soon as you get big enough that commercial entry occurs on its own, you're no longer eligible. Hmm. Uh, The number of cities I think served into that program – now, I should know this, but I think it's something like 50. Okay.
0: So one argument would be uh, it's – as you say, it's there are a lot of people willing to fly, willing to pay uh, a large amount, but not enough so that at the price that the market will bear, that the airline finds it profitable. So they don't get service. Uh, there's a lot of examples like this. People justify the post office this way. You mentioned it in the book, you know, we, we, we there's a lot of cross subsidization, is the technical term, right? Where um, a fixed rate, a flat fee. Is charged for everyone, even though they don't have the same costs of being of providing these people the service, and that has a nice. Um, uh, that's nice for the people who are who are being subsidized. It's not so nice for the rest of us. So unless we care about them, which sometimes we do, right. But but the question would be two questions. One is there's an alternative explanation, which is that Mason City, Iowa, has a really good um, uh, political. It has political power, and their their representative or their senators are powerful. Although the way that you describe it, it's kind of an interesting um, historical um, uh, grandfathering of their their status to try to reduce the harm from deregulation they might have have to endure. But the, the, the problem is anytime you institute these kind of subsidies, uh, the political process is going to ignore efficiency, I would argue, and focus mainly on the opportunity to redistribute. And I would make a stronger point – how would you ever know whether these inefficiencies are there? How would you ever get the information you need to, to know whether these subsidies are justified as opposed to just politically uh, attractive?
1: With the right data, uh, you, know, you could in principle estimate this. Um, but again, I'm not proposing starting up this system from scratch at this point. I'm saying we're already doing this thing, and interestingly, it looks like it's targeting the markets that are, that, that are you know, described by what the theory would suggest markets wouldn't serve. Uh, I mean, so there are sort of technocratic ways one can think about doing it. Um, You know, if you have price and quantity data, you can try to estimate those demand curves and figure out, you know, what's the area under the demand curve and compare it to the revenue they can get and then think about the fixed cost.
0: Have you ever seen a demand curve estimated that you had a lot of faith in for those high? Value demanders who aren't—we're not going to observe those data points up there, right?
1: Oh, I, no, I'm with you. I actually—I <laughs> did a study a couple of years ago looking. I was very, very concerned about those inframarginal guys, and actually did you know surveys about valuations. It wasn't for this kind of a problem, but I'm—I'm I'm in agreement with you that it's—it's hard using conventional econometric techniques to learn something about how the, where the demand curve hits the axis. So it's a challenging problem. You know, my point is a little bit more of a modest point, which is just the way markets work entail these features. That sometimes look like tyranny of the majority, and features in which fixed costs, you know, caused an interdependency among, uh, you know, sort of my satisfaction and how many people share my tastes. It's, I don't dispute. In fact, I think I mentioned in the book we know a lot about various problems with government and with allocation through government. But I think when we tally up things on different sides of the ledger, less has been said about you know, based on empirical evidence about how markets entail similar kinds of features and so that's the more modest contribution I'm trying to make is just to say let's let's look at data let's gather some evidence and see how it is uh, that markets work and let's decide if we're happy with those features you know and then we'll also look at all the other arguments we typically have about problems with government etc but I'm just trying to add a little bit more information on that side of the ledger
0: you know, let's close with the discussion of economic education, which is a a theme of this show that we touch on now and then. Um, you suggest in the book that the textbook treatment of markets has been overly optimistic, overly uh, rosy. Uh, that in the perfect competition model, which is we do teach our students supply and demand, and the, occasionally we teach them the efficiency pro- properties of that system, it's certainly been. A focus of the economics profession, going back for fifty or so years, sixty years, to to look at the what's good about competition. And you could argue it goes back to seventeen seventy six, Adam Smith. And the question I think here is whether the economics education glass is half full or half empty. Um, I don't. I wonder how many um, undergraduate economics majors are taught. The purely rosy view that that you suggest, as opposed to the alternative view, which is the market failure view. So you have on one side uh, the people who claim that markets work perfectly, and then on the other side you say, no, no, no they're flawed. And actually, I don't think they work perfectly. I'm, I'm, you know, a big proponent of markets and and leaving things uh, to private initiative. I, I don't claim that markets are perfect. Um, I do think the textbook vision of supply and demand and the so-called perfect competition vision is a nice way to capture market forces. What it's really bad at capturing to me is not market failure, which I think we all understand can happen, but it's really bad at capturing is the dynamics of how innovation uh, changes market dynamics over time. And so uh, my biggest complaint about undergraduate perfect competition models isn't that they're too rosy. It's that they're not, they can never be rich enough to capture that innovative tendency over time. And the complaints about market failure, I think, are very much a static complaint, because markets work to correct those market failures in many cases. You want to weigh in on that?
1: Well, I mean, so the the perfectly competitive model that we spend about half of the semester on many of these courses, you know, it's a neat model, but it is a model of, you know, homogeneous products and so I guess it. I agree with you that another dimension of richness that's missed is the dimension of of differentiation. I mean, you're right; the dynamics isn't in there. That's a very important dimension. It's not there. But there's a lot of richness that isn't there. And I think when we, you know, we look at the perfectly competitive model, which I think we should, it's a really good intellectual benchmark. Uh, and, and as a first approximation, it's not, you know, it's, it's not a bad way to to think about the world. Uh, but by looking at that model. I think we obscure a lot of important things. I guess we just agree about that.
0: You say we agree or disagree? I
1: think we agree.
0: Yeah, we do. Yeah. I, and In fact, we were talking before we got started with the taping about teaching um, uh, business students and that some of the uh, challenges of, of, of when our material is useful for them versus not. One of the things I find very strange is, and very unintuitive for most business students is this idea that uh, when we teach the theory of, of the firm and we teach markets – whether whether we talk about perfect or imperfect competition, we always say something like taking quality as given. We always say, you know, for good of a particular quality, let's draw a supply and a demand curve. Now, for a firm in a modern economy, choosing quality is much more important than choosing quantity. In our models, typically the big the big decision variables: how much should you make? Yeah, right. That's the le- one of the least interesting decisions. Um, that a modern firm faces, the biggest decision a firm faces in a modern world is which market should I be in? I get to choose my competitors to some extent by choosing a particular quality, by deciding to shade my uh, choice of, of color or features a little bit to differentiate myself. That competition is the heart and essence of modern economic competition and our models are very poor at describing that competition. And there have been attempts, hedonic markets, uh, the work of you know, Sherwin Rosen was very important in starting this and others have, have added to that. Kelvin uh, Lancaster you know, and Gary Becker worked on this, the idea that attributes are what count, not just the actual physical good. But I don't think we've made a lot of progress in making either those models very testable or in drawing welfare conclusions about them. Am I, is that true?
1: I think I agree with uh, much of what you're saying. I mean, I think there is work in industrial economics. You know, again, I'd, I'd refer to John Sutton's work, uh, certainly as, as providing an interesting characterization of quality competition. But, you know, having said that, I think it's... When you have a lot of heterogeneity of people and, and lots of different products, I'm not sure that easy welfare statements are available. You know, I'm not sure that, uh, that you can just say, here's a good versus a bad policy. I think there are going to be winners and losers, if that's the way... I end up thinking about these uh, these problems.
0: Well, I, I don't think we have enough, I really enough information about how markets work in, in the real world. And I think your book, even though I disagree with, with some of the conclusions and some of the analysis, what I like about it a lot is that you actually go out and look and see what happens. We don't do much of that. We spend a lot of time theorizing about what might happen in a very narrow spectrum of choices because that's what the math works on. It doesn't work on these more these richer dynamic pictures. And um, I think we ought to spend more time looking at how outcomes differ by market size, by the amount of competition, by the number of firms. You'd think that would be the focus of industrial economics. And I think it was in a very primitive and not particularly effective way in the fifties and sixties, but we moved away from that. And I don't think we've made a lot of progress.
1: Well, I, I'm depressed to, to agree with you, at least to a great extent. I mean, I think that we have great opportunities though, because now Data are more easily available. I mean, everyone still says data are hard to find, but I think a lot of things end up getting collected by machine. Lots of data exist. A lot of, you know, detailed information about who's buying what. I think we, uh, we we could stand on the brink of a renaissance of empirical work that could inform and help us decide between, uh, you know, well, I don't want to say between my view and yours, because, frankly, I think we mostly agree. <laughs> we mostly agree that, uh, you know, the way that products get, get made available to people is by firms. You know, seeing a profit opportunity, uh, I think that's, you know, that's most of the solution to market failure. But uh, I guess we just disagree about the extent to which uh, the stuff that doesn't get done could be improved upon.
0: Yeah, I think that's true, or, or that if it could be improved on, whether the political process is likely to make the right, the right steps in the right direction.
1: Yeah. No, we, we, I think we've isolated the, uh, the source of our potential disagreement.
0: Excellent. My guest today has been Joel Waldfogel of the University of Pennsylvania. He's the author of The Tyranny of the Market. Joel, thanks for being a guest on Econ Talk.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette.